0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to this new episode of the Security Distillery podcast. This podcast is produced by the Security Distillery student-led think tank of the Erasmus Mundus International Masters in Security, Intelligence, and Strategic Studies. My name is Maya Ryu, and I have the pleasure to introduce our guest for today's podcast, Dr. Babak Rezaei. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. If you wouldn't mind, can you give a little bit of an intro uh, to you, where you work, and a little bit about your research?
1: Uh, hello. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about uh, a very timely topic with you today. Uh, uh, as, as you said, my name is Bubak Rezae Daria Kennedy. It's a full name. Usually the students have a little bit difficulty with pronouncing my name, but you did a good job. Uh, I'm an Assistant Professor of International Relations at Leiden University, the Institute of Political Science. Uh, My research and teaching focus on uh, mostly studying the dynamics of uh, political violence and political conflict. So when I was a PhD student, I started started working on um, environmental causes of conflict in global South countries. And then gradually, I became more interested in uh, the dynamics of uh, social movements and how they transform from nonviolent movement to violent movement. And then it became more interesting to study uh, the dynamics of the intersection of uh, mobilization, repression. Uh, and because I'm a, I have a background in engineering, and I have good skills in uh, working with data uh, when social media that we will talk actually today, I think, uh, during, during our talk became something that uh, both governments and protesters used uh, as, as a tool. I became interested to study its role uh, during repression and protest. Uh, so my focus right now is studying how social media is used by protesters and the government in global south.
0: Fabulous, and that intersection is exactly why we wanted to chat with you today. Because the episode that we will be covering today will will actually be the subject of uh, the current protests happening in Iran, and uh, particularly that intersection of um, you know technology, social media, uh, security, and dissent repression, and that conversation around as the ongoing protests are are happening in Iran, um, you know. with with women and their allies out on the streets, uh, you know, protesting, living and dying um, for their freedoms. We want to dig into the the side of the conversation of how technology and social media is both used by the Iranian regime uh, to try and quell this dissent and kind of repress it. And also um, potentially even ways that that social media is being used by both uh, protesters and allies in Iran, but also outside of Iran to uh, promote those voices. So again, thank you, thank you so much uh, for participating. And let's let's hop right in. So from from your point of view, can you briefly explain for your research and, and focus area how you see that intersection of social media security and dissent repression? Um, you know, as you see it today, whether in the context of Iran or whether in the context of the wider you know global South studies that you, that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a very, very good question because it helped us to actually locate uh, the topic of de- today uh, within a broader uh, literature or scholarship. Uh, um, so when we talk about technology, uh, actually, let's talk about social media first. Like Social media is a technology. and you know, picked up and... Uh, around uh, uh, 2008, especially with uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidential campaign, Facebook helped him a lot to, uh, or played a very important role based on what we know from the research and literature to win the presidential election. And uh, after that, of course, uh, Iranian green movements in 2009 used that and then Arab Spring and it kept coming uh, or becoming uh, a very important tool for protesters. Um, that said, uh Technology always played a very important. New technologies, whether to say, uh, played a very important role in this interaction or, or 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 the contention between the government and protesters across the world. Right. But, um, so, if you want to go very uh, back, uh, during the uh, Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, uh, uh, Lenin Lenin used this idea of using a newspaper to spread the word or make conscious uh, consciousness about. Uh, what's happening in the country, right? So spreading the news using newspaper was something significant. Uh, If we go to 1979 um, in Iran, during the Islamic Revolution, um, the Ayatollah Khomeini was outside of Iran. So he was in exile, he was in Kuwait, in Iraq, in Turkey, and then he moved to uh, to, uh, France. Uh, And what was very helpful for for that movement was that the cassette player was becoming something common or popular among Iranians. So he recorded his speeches. He gave instructions um, to the to the people on the on the cassette, uh, cassettes, and then people smuggled them to the to Iran, and then they could hear what. The Ayatollah said, for example, what's the plan for a strike? What's the plan for, for mobilization? Um, also, BBC uh, Persian was, uh, as a radio station, what played an important role, right? So techn- we, got, we got excited that, oh, people are using social media in their fight against, or democratic of, um, uh, efforts or movements against authoritarian regime, but using technology always was part of uh, the agenda of the uh, democratic movements, right? Social media plays more or less a similar role, as I said, uh, first in the US in a democratic regime and then it picked up I remember in 2009 I was in Iran and I was a student I remember that people use Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter uh, to communicate with each other um, first during the presidential campaigns in Iran and then after that when it led to uh, a wave of protests which is known as Green Movement and then in um, during the uh, but it failed somehow right or it was not a successful movement so it didn't get much attention from the world but social media got a lot of attention uh, during the arab spring because uh, in facebook was a uh, important tool or or twitter was an important tool <laughs> for the protesters uh d- during during the arab spring so uh, that's how I I see the role of the social media historical wise how it how 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 we we see it as a part of a technology that people use uh, in in their in their uh, democratic movements or their agenda for achieving their goals. Uh, but something that we should consider or we always forget is that and we keep, I think we will, it will come up and we can discuss it further in the uh, during during and this this session is that. Governments also are smart, right, especially authoritarian regimes. They, they see these technologies. They, you, might, you might get them surprised or uh, surprise them by using these technologies, these new technologies like social media against them, uh, start a movement, even be a successful movement like what happened during the Arab Spring. But they learn, right, they, they, they adjust their repressive apparatus, to make sure that they are using or exploiting social media in their favor to 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 demobilize the movement to repress the anti-government movements right so it's something that we should look at them from both sides and it's evolving over time and uh, that's that's makes it something interesting for me
0: because i think in our research when we were looking on into it you know it's it's for for 2021, for example, we found that Iran was the third country in the world in terms of the largest amount of government-backed internet shutdowns um, behind India and Myanmar. And uh, usually that that coincided with days of elections and, and protests, um, you know, as you mentioned with the original Green Movement for how that, that kicked off. And, and so when we were looking at it, you know, for 2022 and the current protests that we're seeing, you know, I think we hear in the West especially, we hear a lot about. Uh, the internet shutdowns and um, you know, kind of that control um, of the access. So, so from from that side, what what efforts are there that are being made by the protesters in Iran right now for utilizing certain things to to get those videos onto social media, onto these platforms like um, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, you know, whatever they can try and, and use to to take that platform and then um, really push out into the wider world what is going on um, and the, you know, um, the violence that's happening during the protests and the violence meted out um, by, the, by the Iranian regime. Oh,
1: well, that's a very interesting point uh, that you brought up. Uh, uh, so uh, that's part of the evolution of technology's role that I mentioned, right? So. In 2009, I remember when the protesters protest actually uh, picked up and become you know became something that uh, sort of government found it uh, it's causing a lot of trouble for the for the for the for the government. They the, the easiest solution was that shut down the internet or slow it down um, very much to to the minimum, and then even stop the messaging service, SMS service, right? Short message services as well. Uh, And and that was the the solution that the government used back then, right? So it was sort of a a very reactionary response to what's happening and how people and protesters are using social media. Uh, But there is something that we should consider, right? Uh, Governments and often authoritarian regimes um, usually do not experience this contentious politics environment, right? Uh, actually, for example, right now we have protests and we have cycle of protests and we see more protests over the last few years in Iran. But often it's very hard to overcome the collective action problem authoritarian regimes and start a movement, right? So the other times of the year, or uh, usually authoritarian regimes think that, okay, we have the internet it actually has some economic benefits for us as well, right? So that's what we call it, uh, dictated dilemmas regarding the internet and including social media. What does it mean? It means that internet can be a a, a risk, a danger for the government because people can use it to overcome their collective action problem and uh, cause further problem uh, during the protest. But on the other hand, there is a lot of economic benefits associated with using the internet. Let me give you an example. In Iran, based on the recent information that we got, uh, the internet uh, actually uh, plays a very important role in in the economy of the country, especially a country that is affected severely by sanctions. Right, About 1 million people uh, have online jobs or the jobs is highly uh, uh, dependent on the internet. Uh, For example, they have uh, small businesses or family businesses, and then they post uh, about their business uh, on on Instagram, on Telegram, and they they advertise, they get uh, uh, sort of uh, orders, they they deliver the order, they have communication, they handle the customer relations on, on Instagram. Right. 1 million people directly are benefiting from the internet and about uh, 9 million people indirectly. So the total number of job creation or job dependency on internet in Iran is about 10 million. It's not my number, it's from the government. Yeah, Yeah, And over the last two months, due to the disruption of the internet, uh, it, it led to a loss of about 4 billion euros. So it's a it's a huge economic benefit that government is losing. So that idea of the shutting down the internet fully doesn't work. So that's one part of the idea. We should think that, as you asked, how we get the videos because shutting down shutting down the internet entirely is not a solution. Right. So you can see at the beginning of the movement it was too difficult for the government so it was a cyclical uh, behavior you could see that during the day governments um, actually opened the uh, uh, internet space for for people to use um for for the transaction for their businesses and when and then around 8 pm uh, the uh, the internet censorship uh, started or a shotgun of the internet uh, started until 4am the day after. So it was during the time that people actually protested. So you could see there was some on and off uh, access to the internet. Uh, And sometimes we see a severe shutdown of the internet, uh, because uh, now it's a strategic tool for the government. Uh, there is a there is a great scholar in Her- Hertie University, Anita Godas, and she worked specifically on this type of um, governmental strategies. And she finds that actually shutting down the internet is associated. Can be associated with a high level of repression uh, by by the state in some areas. So, for example, now in Kurdistan, we see that the uh, the internet shutdown is uh, very regular and it's happening. Uh, it's more common. It's more permanent. Uh, they should get concerned that okay, there should be something that the government doesn't want to us what doesn't want us to hear, right? So that's something okay. that we should consider. And I want to add another a couple of other points is that uh, is that. Uh, VPN technology also got better right so in the past governments had actually did better in um sort of uh, uh sort of uh, censoring uh, their VPN uh, services as well now VPN services got smarter and it's harder for the government to censor them as well so it's a mix of different mechanisms that helping protesters now today or these days in Iran to, to benefit the internet uh, generally and social media particularly.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and with VPNs as well, they're much more common now. And a lot of them are free, you know, free mm-hmm. platforms instead sort of need to, to pay a subscription. And so, you know, I, I think I, even in my talks with, um, uh, with activists that are here in the in the area where we're studying right now in Prague, um, you know, it's the conversation around you know the VPNs being integral to um, a lot of the efforts by protesters to to upload and then and then share uh, you know videos of everything that's going on to keep everyone updated um, outside of Iran as well are, are hugely crucial. Um, so it, you know, kind of connected to this um, to this conversation. Of really the the protests in Iran and also the the social media being able to disperse um, their their voices and and obviously the the videos of, of everything um, that is going on you know once it gets to the international community you know in your mind is is there a way to to also utilize social media um, for a kind of give back to what those protesters are doing, you know, platforms, voices, like is that as as crucial? I think um, you know as it seems, right? Because I think even in conversations with with some people that I've had here, for example, where um, some of our amazing student activists, even in our own program here in Prague, are part of protests and and actively um, you know sharing everything online, sharing their own protests here in Prague about um, you know about what's happening in Iran um is hugely important. And yet there's still questions that pop up from, um, you know, fellow students or or people, um, you know, in the in the West who say, okay, but how, you know, how is this helping? Um, you know, or or how is sharing the videos of these protests that are going on outside of Iran in support of the protesters that are that are there, um, you know, from, from that idea and in your mind, is that as crucial as as we think it is?
1: So that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And um, so what I want to uh, the way that I want to answer this question, I want to propose, uh, I think, a more fundamental question that we should answer as a scholar and political scientist or social scientist. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we had a lot of uh, unfortunate situation, um, you know, or, or uh, horrific events in, during two, uh, World War II, you know, it was mm-hmm. a, a Holocaust, and then we had similar situation all around the world. Right? Still, we are asking ourselves, uh, as, a, as a foreign actor, or as an actor outside of the country that experiencing this brutality, brutality by their government, or, um, you know, a government that doesn't respect human rights, what can we do? Uh, that, I think, has been 40, 50 years, <laughs> I think even more. And if yeah. so you're asking that type of question, um, that's, that's something uh, actually we should revise our research program. But I think that's what, what I have been thinking about this because what you are asking is part of this larger question that what can we do outside of Iran, for example, in a case like Iran, um, uh, that we are seeing all of these brutalities and violations of human rights by the government against the protesters, but w- what, what can we do? And does just uh, uh, retweeting some tweets help or not, right? Um, I should define, I should answer your question in two parts. I, I think in the West, uh, th- there's democracy, right? Democracy means that politicians should listen to their people, right? If you are worried about what's happening in Iran, you should uh, actually uh, have your voice uh, heard by the politicians and make it important and uh, or significant issue for them as well. Right. So this is something that talking about Iran, talking about these atrocities, all are important. Right. I, I will get back to this in a uh, in a moment. But the second part is that whether, for example, that retweet or like matters. Um, you will be surprised, but it matters a lot um, because when you look at the algorithms of social media platforms, and there are some research on that, all of those people who we can call them peripheral in the network—they are—they don't—they are not influencers, right? They play a very important role to spread the word and news. Uh, so Pablo Bar- Barbara is a great scholar who works on social media platform. He's, uh, he, he's, a, uh, he's an associate professor uh, in uh, University of Southern California. Uh, he, uh, him and uh, his co-authors work on a paper and they show that actually all of these retweets matter uh, to, to spread the word. So what you are doing, for example, your, your um, uh, friends are posting about Iran and you are retweeting, that plays uh, also an important role. But what we should ask from politicians, the European politicians, let's say, or the American politician, or the politician in the uh, in global North, is that uh, they 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 it's not about you know providing uh, because when you talk about this, some people ask this question that oh what's happening in Iran first of all is related to Islamophobia, right? Because we mm. are burning hijab, and it's it's something that we should revise totally. Uh, if you if you link, if you sort of hesitate to make a comment or support protests in Iran, because it can be called Islamophobic movements. You need to define your uh, definition of Islamophobia. Islamophobia, yeah. Uh, your understanding of protests in Iran or your analytical framework that you are using. The reason is that if you look at the protests carefully, is that you can see people with hijab are on the streets, uh, so, there is another layer of hijab uh, without actually you have a scarf, it's called hijab, but there is another type of hijab in Iraq we call chador, uh, which covers the entire body. You see people with chador, right, not the scarf, with chador on the streets protesting. So, if you are sitting, you know, miles away and say, oh, you know, burning hijab uh, or, or, or scarves are Islamophobic, uh, you know, moves and ignoring the understanding of those people with hijab on the streets protesting the government in Iran. So that's, I don't have anything to say. So let the people, actually let the Iranians tell you if it is a Islamophobic or not, Um, because that's the protest. And you see that people with hijab, religious people are on the streets and they are protesting the government. So that's something that I think we should clarify that and tell people, no, it's not about, Uh, Islamophobia actually it's about uh, some of the very religious people who are against the government they say that the government is using religion as an instrument actually we want to protect Islam again actually uh, from those who are abusing Islam abusing religious uh, religion to 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 repress other people to kill their people right so they, they, we should have, it, it's the context and nuance is very important. We should be careful about that. So I, I, something is clarified. I want what you say, what we can do is that clarify this and provide more support for people in Iran and who are protesting. Um, regarding the politicians, uh, there are different level of uh, actions that they can take, right? Whenever we say support us, is that but we don't want a civil war in Iran. No one wants a civil war in Iran, right? And um, helping them means that, uh, sort of decrease your diplomatic relationship with Iran, right? For now, Iran is experiencing a lot of economic issues. The government of Iran, the Islamic Republic is experiencing a lot of government um, economic, economic issues, right? They are hoping to reach a nuclear agreement with, with, the, with the West, so that they can get their monies or uh, uh, to, to Iran and then distribute some money or may, uh, and using the distribution of that money among the people, uh, sort of demobilize the movement. Right? Why? 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 We should consider that this movement is not solely about economic grievances. Right. So that's one thing that we should consider. So. Decrease your diplomatic relationship with, uh, with with Iranian governments. Show them that you are upset that they are killed. They killed 400 people, more than 400 people, in a, in, a, in about two months, right? Um, tell them that you won't negotiate uh, a nuclear deal with them or any deal with them. Exactly what uh, uh, EU Parliament uh, yesterday uh, communicated and said that we are not negotiating, but we want to have this voice heard from. Um, from other politicians, prime ministers, from presidents, uh, clear voice about them, right? Third one is impose sanctions in a correct way and apply them in a correct way. Give you an example. I I, I know a lot of Iranians having difficulties even open a bank account in European uh, banks, right? So that's the level of uh, how much you want to be careful about Um, applying the sanctions and making sure that you are not violating sanctions. That said, we know that one of the companies uh, that helps the Iranian government to filter the internet has offices in Germany. Recently, they sanctioned them. But why should it take a long time? You don't allow, the banks do not allow Iranian students who come here to get their salaries, spend them, or sometimes maybe they bring a little bit tuition for them, so or some money to support. You are very careful about them. Sometimes do not let them even open a bank account, or uh, they have to go through few months of investigations that you are not abusing your account, and then you allow a, 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 a business that helps the filtering of the internet have a business in Germany and probably have a, have a bank account, right? For example, uh, there's another company, Digicolor, which is associated with uh, uh, with, with uh, uh, the, the IRGC, uh, economic uh, being of IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard. And they got an investment of 10 million euros from a firm in Amsterdam or registered in Amsterdam, but we do not with that firm, right? 10 million euros. So I want to say that this type of, you know, uh, if you want to have the sanctions, apply the sanctions carefully and do them in a way that targets the government and it's repressive apparatus uh, instead of targeting or applying it on easy cases like students, for example. Right. That's what I I would see as a as a what can be done from outside and whether uh, that retweets or like it that you give to to your your friends uh, tweets on Iran help or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny that you bring up these. Um, well, not funny in the grand scheme of things, but interesting that you bring up these these companies that are um, you know still doing deals and and um, you know still able to to kind of. Operate without any of the the consequences that even young students are having to deal with in terms of the misapplication of these uh, these sanctions and these in these political actions. Um, and it it actually made me think of the case of uh, Elon Musk with his Starlink. Yeah. Uh, smuggling Starlink into into Iran recently um you know and and what responsibility maybe do not only big tech companies like Elon and now him him um heading up in you know questionable and I guess uh, <laughs> uh you know kind of Forward-thinking, if you will, ways of uh, Twitter, for example, um, you know, and and his businesses like getting Starlink um, internet access in as much as he can. You know, what responsibility do not only these big tech companies, but also, you know, these these firms that are continuing to basically profit and do business off of of working with the Islamic Republic government and uh, the guards and you know and things like that. What responsibility do they do they have? Um, for, for putting similar pressure on um, on the regime to to stop, you know, these human rights abuses and, and these killings, for example.
1: That's a that's a very good question. I want to add because we are talking about tech generally. So I want to sort of related to this question and my previous questions that I probably you read this news that uh, Ukrainian forces they could actually hack uh, one of the drones, uh, Iranian drones, and they dis- disassemble the the, the parts. And it's very interesting that there are a lot of parts produced in the US, in in the EU countries, and one piece from Israel. So uh, when we are talking about tech companies, right, we want to be very careful about how, uh, I absolutely understand it's very important to produce some of these parts and uh, for the the sake of the security of the countries that uh, they are producing them, right? However, that said, they should be very careful about how those pieces are sold on the black market, I assume that's happened, right? Which is, again, related to what I said, that European countries need to be very careful about how they are imposing sanctions and managing them. Because if they, you don't do that, it can come back through the drone uh, that Iranian government is producing and using in Ukraine uh, against, against, uh, against U- Ukrainian people that actually EU is supporting, right? So, We should be careful about that. But if we take it uh, more toward the social media, one one of the points that I have and I make uh, and I think about these days that why social media is actually uh, helping protesters in Iran and government is failing to uh, use social media as a repression technology is that uh, I think we saw a large improvement uh, in, on social media platforms, uh, my focus especially especially is Twitter, Twitter improved significantly regarding fighting an uh, authentic pro-government operation campaigns, right? So uh, th- there, there is a unit there, they are working on this area, they, they publish the news, and they are learning how governments use Twitter or social media to run uh, an unauthentic disinformation campaign or sometimes misinformation campaigns on, on social media. So they have their algorithms and they actually uh, stop these unauthentic campaigns. Uh, that, that's a great thing that they are doing. Uh, they are now better with reporting the news. I know that, for example, there are some uh, some, some accounts on social media, or on Twitter that uh, are not are actually part of the cyber army of Iran. So what they do, for example, they spread the violence, they want to post the, uh, they they post the photos of the protesters and ask people to identify them. You can quickly block these or report these accounts and Twitter within sometimes a few hours, shut down their accounts and suspend their accounts, right? This is what's happening and I think it's it's doing well. However, there, there are must actually they, they could be done uh, even more. Right? I think uh, when you have a large number of uh, people using social media in the countries that you see there is a risk of conflict, you should have people expert on that country uh, on that knowledge, on that culture and that uh, language to help you, to understand the nuance of the conflict in this country. So when I'm looking at the, at the, at the, at the post, and sometimes I, I I'm doing some sort of um report of the tweets as well myself, I see that sometimes Twitter is doing good. And sometimes when the context becomes a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit complex, the context of the tweet becomes complex, uh, or it's more uh, understandable for a person who is familiar with the, Iranian culture or Middle Eastern culture, they don't get the idea and they said, oh, we, we reviewed and eva- evaluated your report, but we are not um, uh, sort of suspending this account or we are not, we are not actually, we don't see this tweet, a violation of Twitter policy. Though I know Twitter policies very well, right? So I think um, they need to be more active. They need, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit, uh, Um, A a, a big plan or too ambitious, but uh, this is a new technology and we need to come up with new ideas as well, right? As you have marketing team for Middle East uh, in social media uh, uh, companies, they need to have experts on uh, safety and security of social media platforms who are expert on those regions or the areas, especially if they are prone to conflict. So that's something that should be done, I think, by, by, by big firms. And my focus is mostly on Twitter. I'm talking about that. Instagram and Facebook are very, actually they are not very good platforms for political activities because I heard a lot of people, I can list them if I go through them, that people said, we posted about a revolution, about the revolutionary movement in Iran, and they got uh, actually uh, removed from the platform because the idea of that platform is different, right? So it's an entertainment, it's a happy place. You, 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 you show all of the good things that's happening to your life. So you don't want uh, make that platform, especially Instagram, a, a, very, uh, a very, a very, a political, uh, I, I would say, uh, platform. So that's something that also um, uh, in, in, in big tech companies uh, or big social media companies should consider, uh, or people can keep them accountable, right? So you 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 should promise that you do not um, manipulate the flow of the authentic flow of information on your platforms. That should be your commitment. And posting about protests and call asking people that react to the atrocities that the government is committing is not an authentic uh, or, or an original um, a flow of information. That's a reality. So that's what I see uh, that uh, tech companies uh, or specifically big social media companies can do.
0: Yeah, and because if you think about it, you know, obviously these big these big firms they've got crisis plans for everything. You know, they've got they they, yeah. they, they they've 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 uh, surely been thinking about um you know kind of all worst case scenarios. Um, but I think per our discussion on this this episode, for example, is you know do do they have the plans in place or or have they done enough? proactively to be prepared for these moments when you will see larger, um, larger kind of campaigns of uh, disinformation campaigns that are coming out in response to, um, you know, to these governments and authoritarian regimes, realizing that they, they as well need to take a hand in, um, you know, in, in utilizing and securitizing social media um, amidst these really uh, dramatic moments for, for, the future of, of
1: their control um, in their country yeah so I think I think you brought a very interesting point that I always tell, my, tell myself and my students and that uh, I think after what happened during the uh, 2017 uh, presidential election in the US if, I'm, if I find that Trump pres- Trump won the presidency and he used yeah. abused the internet, we could see there was a sort of revolution in in, uh, social media companies that they became more welcoming of uh, uh, social scientists in their teams. So I'm an engineer, so I easily um, uh, criticize engineers for what I want to say is that Engineers always think that they got that, right? It's a very mechanical situation of solving the problem. There are some people that they are posting um, misinformation or disinformation and we define an algorithm and then we can identify them or we can deal with them right yeah it's
0: uh, easy, it. easy
1: and it's done <laughs> and not, right which is not right which is not because we as social scientists uh, we see the problems uh, have different layers and you uh, and and the people are much much smarter than a machine or algorithm things i'll teach I teach machine learning so I do believe in that but I criticize that people are smarter than machine at least for now right maybe in 100 years, they become smarter than us, but I doubt that they get uh, computational power. Anyways, I think at the moment people are smarter, and they can play with these algorithms. They can, they can, uh, they can uh, get away with all of these algorithm that you are defining to sort of handle the misinformation problem right so what they what they need to do I believe is that they need to engage more with social scientists I I was talking to some of uh, the students in your program I heard that you are receiving training in algorithms uh, the the intelligent um, um, uh, artificial intelligence about the these type of stuff right and you do security Right. If if I was in, in Facebook or Twitter, I would have hired some of you, of course, it's, I think it would be hard to hire some of you, convince some of you to work for those big tech companies. I know that. But if I was them, I said, OK, these are trained very well. They can come next to my engineers and form a working group. Um, to, to deal and help us with this type of crisis because they, they know what, what are the social and societal issues, the social mechanisms. They know security aspects of the crisis. They understand conflict and they have a good understanding of uh, algorithms, um, developing the algorithms, social media, their architecture. Of course, we, you can use your engineers and experts, computer scientists, as a part of the team, I know that they have social scientists, but the weight should go upper and upper, right? They need to rely on social scientists and and, and security experts even further and form all of these crisis team uh, or crisis strategies and plans to deal with these type of issues. Simply mistakes that they make can lead to having a higher number of people getting killed, arrested, tortured just pure human right violations right so that's something that it it is worth to invest in that and make sure that we have we got a very as good as possible of course um uh, uh, crisis uh management plan for such a situation that happens for example right now in iran
0: absolutely and yes i completely agree with you about that intersectionality of of um, experience and interests, and uh, specifically like where we're coming from in this program, you know, and other programs that are starting to recognize um, that yes, almost the 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 impact of having individuals available for either these large companies, um, individual governments, or even you know multilateral organizations where these voices can can be heard and become those subject matter experts um, in the room that are also bringing their own diverse backgrounds. Um, and experience and, and uh, you know, cultures and, and activism and um, you know, all those pieces that can kind of come together and really start, start approaching um, the, the problem and the, the issues that are going to come about from this intersection that will even progress further as technology progresses, as you know, the parallel that we talked about from uh, the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, all the way to the Arab Spring, to what we're seeing now with the Iran of today. Um, you know and and potentially whatever uh crises or or issues that will arise um in the future it'll be hugely important to have those voices in the room.
1: exactly i agree with you i think that's that's a, that's a that's something that uh big tech companies should work on them
0: absolutely well i am so thrilled that we were able to get together today um and and discuss these issues and uh, the current protests in iran and specifically that nexus of uh, technology, social media, the security issue um and dissent repression. Uh and I'm so thrilled that you were able to um come and, and chat with us. Um and I hope all the listeners have really enjoyed as much as I have uh getting to you know kind of dissect and dig deeper into this issue. Um so thank you again and I appreciate it so much.
1: Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh it was great talking to you. It was a such a such a nice and um uh... Uh, actually thought, thought-provoking uh, conversation uh, that I had as well. I I, I enjoyed the uh, conversation very much. And I want to add something because I know that some of the students are your uh, audiences, uh, audience actually. And uh, I always tell my students, I think studying is very important, uh, very much, you know, the, uh, learning the skills. But one of the skills is very important as I was a student. And I was very involved with all of these extra uh, uh, curriculum activities uh, having organizations attending you know uh, sport teams or political teams or social teams I think what you do in this podcast or these type of activities are very important as well first of course you are providing a public good for the people right that's that's important at the same time these type of activities help you to develop your social skills as well so um, that's why I'm always a big fan of um, student activities and organization and it reminds me of the good uh, student dates that I had um, so uh, I encourage all of the students do these type of activities or similar activities as well or uh, help these type of activities that you are doing um, that's that was uh, my, my last point and uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this conversation and I wish you best of luck in future.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And again, this was another great episode of the Security Distillery podcast produced by the Security Distillery, a student-led think tank of the Erasmus Mundus International Masters in Security, Intelligence and Strategic Studies. Thank you all so much.